welcome back to Roll for Enterprise. This week we have the full house, so we're joined by Mike, Lilac, and Zach, and also special guest Brian Singer from Noble Nine. So Noble Nine is a very interesting company in a very interesting space. And so we thought we should get Brian in to tell us uh, a little bit more about that. So welcome to the podcast, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me on, Dominic. Brian has done a number of different things in the industry. For those of our guests who want to go look him up, we're going to stick the LinkedIn bio in the uh, in the show notes. But why Noble9 now? So it's all about event management and reliability and uh, site reliability engineering, all these very fashionable topics of the day. Uh, I think it's fair to say that. Um, but why don't you tell us, Brian, in your own words, why you thought there was a gap in the market and what Noble Nine aims to do about it? And congratulations on the funding, by the way, we should add. They're still very topical. And just close oh, the funding round. Well, I should I should start before we get into Noble Nine by saying that Lilac and Dominic taught me pretty much everything I know about enterprise software. So, uh, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, <laughs> you're in good hands. Um, and that's a that's a good thing. That's a good thing, everybody. Yeah, it's it's definitely a good thing. Um, <laughs> so 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 why why Noble Nine? So and 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 site reliability engineering. Um, what what has been happening in the industry, and this has been happening as companies have moved to cloud and more and more services have have moved online is that the the actual delivery of a service, the reliability of a service, how you access it, is becoming uh, part of, of what we consider to be the product that we use. Um, in other words, it's not just the fact that Netflix has a catalog of movies. It's the fact that I can actually stream them very, very rapidly from pretty much wherever I am. Um, and, and they don't and that, buffer, they don't stop on me halfway through. Exactly, exactly. And and while Netflix figured that out pretty early on, pretty much every enterprise is becoming a software company and is becoming a company where service delivery is, is core to their business. And if you look around at who's had to deal with that, right, the, the large internet companies sort of have been dealing with those issues since, uh, since really 2005, 2010. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that they have, have dealt with that is by treating the problem of service delivery as an engineering problem. Um, so in other words, not only do we have engineers developing features in the product, we have engineers actually focused on um, how are we going to run the service and how are we going to deliver it to our end customers. And that's, that's the primary thing that, that site reliability engineering is concerned with and why it's becoming such a hot topic uh, in the industry. Right, because it's no longer about the functionality of an offline thing that you deliver and you're done with it. It's about the ongoing functionality of the whole service. And that very much includes how it performs, how it behaves under load, yep. in the field. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, a lot. I think a lot of the trends that we see happening are, are uh, you know, derived from that. You know, if you look at like, why everybody wants to move to microservices, for example, it's because it makes it easier for multiple engineering teams to collaborate on services that are being delivered online because you can update things, uh, you know, without impacting other other parts of the application. Um, so it really comes down to, to pretty simple things like that. But those architectures give rise to a host of other problems. Um, and we, you know, 
organizations that have moved to microservices-based architectures, you probably see a lot of this on Twitter of, gosh, well, this is just more complicated. We've just overcomplicated everything again now with microservices. Um, and in some ways you have, uh, but there are real benefits in terms of developer velocity and whatnot. So I, I think that trend is here to stay. Um, and what, we, what we're really concerned with at Noble9 is um, figuring out how to more efficiently deliver those services using techniques that have been developed by companies like Google uh, over the past 10, 15 years. So you're really focused on um, the customer experience for these you know, companies who are trying to serve whatever to their to their end customer, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, ultimately, you know, whether you're a, a B2C or B2B, you know, there's some uh, end customer of the software that you're building. I would I would argue that if you have no customer of your software, um, it's probably not very relevant software. So you know, so, sometimes you see uh, you know sort of reliability impacting directly on revenue. If you're in the case of like a e-commerce company, um, you know, a company like obviously Amazon or or you know in the EU, a company like maybe like Bull.com, um, the you know being up directly ties to revenue. Other times, you know, you can tie it to things like customer churn. Um, but the important thing is, as we've moved to services-based architectures, uh, oftentimes your customers of whatever you're building are, are internal customers. Um, and and ultimately that, that uh, the reliability of any given service will flow through to an end user or an end customer or, you know, another business user of your product. Um, but your direct customer might be uh, another team that's building a product that's that's based on your service. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the important trends right now. We used to have this categorization back when you and Lilac and I used to work together about systems of records, systems of insights, systems of engagement. And these were conceived as different systems with very different performance envelopes, very different reliability expectations. And these days, everything's kind of collapsed into one. It's all one service. It doesn't matter if the system of record is up, if the users can't engage with it, uh, they're just as likely to churn uh, over slow right, performance. Right. And right. if and, you're and, not yeah. doing analysis on the back end, same deal, you're blind to what's going on in your business. So you have to have that insight as well. You can't afford to say this service is uh, the sacrificial lamb, we can live without it. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're really concerned with at Noble9 is actually uh, figuring out what those tolerances are for you know each individual service. Uh, how reliable or unreliable can we be? And I like to use the analogy of um, you know building things in the physical world. Anything you build in the physical world has tolerances associated about it. What makes um, I know you're a bit of a car guy, Dominic, but like what makes a Bugatti so expensive? Uh, part of it is the tolerances on the parts um, that you put into the engine of a Bugatti or the, the you know, the actual, uh, you know, sheet metal that you're putting on is built to very, very uh, small tolerances. And it's it, it makes it very expensive, obviously, to be that precise. And the same thing is true with software. If you get to higher and higher levels of reliability, you're actually having smaller and smaller uh, tolerances uh, in terms of what your uh, what your failures are. Uh, what sort of failures are allowed. Um, and it gets very, very expensive. Um, so for organizations, it's actually about balancing um, the the investment that you make in making sure the service is running with how, you know, how unreliable you're actually allowed to be. Um, and Noble9 is, is 
a, a platform that is helping organizations figure out what those tolerances are and then uh, measure them and, and enforce them over time. That's so interesting. It, it takes me back to when I was, you know, I've been in the DRAS and backup space for like a decade before I joined Rocket. And um, and one of the, the philosophies around that is, you know, find your most critical applications and make sure that they have an HA solution behind them and not just a backup based recovery solution because backup takes a great deal longer to recover from than an HA solution, right? That's the sort of overarching thesis. Um, and it's it's funny, I, funny, I guess is not the right word, but um, one of the things that I started talking about toward the end of my tenure at my last role was that we often think of things like development machines as being highly expendable because they're so, well, they're development machines. They're just developers. There's no customers on them. There's no production on them, right? But if a development environment goes down for a week, your release is slipped, right? For sure. And there is downstream impact from that and sometimes very significant downstream impact from that and the loss of hours and hours and hours of people's productivity, which is not free for an organization. Um, and so I think it's really interesting how we frame what is or is not important in an organization and in an IT environment. Yeah. And that maps up to the notion of the error budget uh, that comes out of SRE that you can afford to have a certain level of in availability, uh, performance degradation, of what have you, but you spend that, and you spend that on whatever you need to spend it on. But if you spend it on that one event where somebody trips over the power cord, well, it's gone, and now you you can't use it for anything else until it refreshes. Exactly. Are we all going to have to read the Phoenix Project again? Because <laughs> oh my goodness, that could hurt me. <laughs> um, yeah, you 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 hit the nail on the head, and w what is I think conceptually, it makes a lot of sense, right? If you talk about, um, so now we'll get into the crux of it, you know, a service level objective, how reliable we want a particular service or user journey to be. Um, and the inverse of that is, you know, error budget, how much, how many errors are allowed. Um, if you, you know, if you talk about it conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. When we talk about it with customers, they say, yeah, you know, I, I should be absolutely running, you know, all of my services, IT services, and you know, external customer-facing software, uh, you know, in this manner. But when you go to actually implement that, um, it's not easy to do because we don't have these conversations very often about how reliable is reliable enough, and what are the risks of of you know this particular service going down. What are the dependencies, um, and how do we measure all of that? So it is partly a technical challenge, and obviously we're trying to solve that, but it is also uh, very much so a, a cultural challenge and a cultural shift uh, to get away from the mindset of, let's just get to, uh, you know, four nines, five nines, and everything will be good to, well, this particular service, you know, if we want the customer experience to be four nines, the dependencies have to be five nines, and that's woefully expensive and and pretty much impossible, actually, unless you're, you're NASA and you're, you're building... Uh, incredible amounts of redundancy. Uh, Brian, I was going to ask, how do you frame these um, these questions? And are you framing them in financial terms or are you framing them in downtime terms? Yeah. So oftentimes it's framed uh, in financial terms. Um, really what you're looking at is for that particular service, what is the impact of downtime? Um, and, and, you know, it's a little bit of art and a little bit of science. Uh, I think what's interesting is that it's a conversation that frequently product managers and salespeople uh, have to get involved with. 
and and it's hard to you know speak about it in the hypothetical, but if you think about it, you know, a, a specific service like, you know, let's look at that e-commerce scenario where if you um, uh, if your checkout page goes down for for ten minutes, um, you know, likely that customer is going to come back ten minutes later if it happens one time uh, and check out, and so the impact of that is is actually pretty muted on revenue. Um, but if every time the customer tries to check out, they have to wait 10 minutes, then they're probably going to go find another storefront to purchase from. So it's really finding that, that frontier. And it, and it actually takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of data analysis. Brian, this is Zach. I had a question. Um, first of all, welcome to the show. For those customers that perhaps aren't uh, relying on microservices, maybe they're relying on a no-code or a low-code uh, application. I mean, what does Noble9 do for them? Um, and even, I guess, a, a part B to that, maybe from a backend as a service, maybe there's something you do there, or is this solely focused on, you know, microservices and and um, and that whole world? Um, yeah. So we're not only focused on microservices. That that's a great question. Um, typically you want to look at the reliability, not of the, the infrastructure, but of the, the user journey, the overall user journey. And I'll, I'll use an example of like logging in, for example, or actually we like to say, we like to talk about, uh, password resets. Um, you know, in a, in a typical application, uh, when a user requests a password reset, maybe about 80% of the time, those, those are going to be successful. Um, and you know, the other 20%, they don't click on the email or they go off and do something else. But you basically say to yourself, well, my objective for this password reset is that 80% of the time it's successful. And you can build an SLO around that and you can look at it and you can basically say, um, you know, if, if I'm under 80%, I'm burning error budget. Now, the reality is there's probably several services that, that underlie that password reset. There is the actual page that the user has to navigate to that's being served. There is probably uh, an email service, transactional email service that's uh, sending the user somewhere. There's probably some sort of authentication service that's, you know, authenticating a token that comes back in the email. So if any one of those services has issues, uh, it's going to impact the error budget of that login service. Um, so then, yeah, you want to instrument each of those individual services with, with SLOs. Um, now, if those services are running in my own infrastructure in Kubernetes, um, I'm also probably going to look at the SLOs related to the Kubernetes platform uh, itself. Uh, you know, I'm going to look at things like network latency of those APIs. If if that service is running on somebody else's infrastructure, like platform as a service, maybe I'm running it on Heroku or I'm running it in Lambda. Um, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not going to create SLOs for those things because I'm relying on a third party that's giving that's giving me an SLO. They're tracking the SLO, um, or maybe I, maybe I do right, and it tells me a little bit about how reliable that underlying platform is. Um, you know, it could be that I need this service to be more reliable than the underlying platform, uh, and I actually have to migrate it to something that I'm managing myself. Um, so you know, all of these things play into it, but uh, certainly, you know, no matter where you're running a service, SLOs can be uh, effective. Yeah, I don't have we did have do we dive into SLOs for these listeners? I mean, do we go over that? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we 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 did it in detail. Dominic kind of dived into error budget, but we can talk about the uh, you know what they are and the specifics a little bit. Yeah, I think it's worth starting from the beginning because. I'm not entirely certain because one of the things I love about podcasts actually is the privacy. Uh, we don't actually know that much uh, about our audience, but I think it's a safe assumption that uh, these are people who um, 
are about the same stage as we are in our careers. And so one of the things that happens is you get a little bit siloed. Uh, you do your thing to increasing depth, but you kind of lose track of the state of art in neighboring areas. And then you might pick them up every few years if you switch silos or break the walls down in one direction. So if the last right. thing you did in terms of uh, the availability and reliability and performance of an application was based on event management, the game has moved on quite significantly. So Brian, why, why don't you tell us about modern event management and why monitoring is no longer a thing that we really talk about and instead we have all these SRE, SLO, all of these other words. Sure. Um, so we talked a little bit about SRE and how, you know, really it's about applying engineering principles to the, the problems of service delivery. Uh, and, and one of the things that engineers are really concerned with is building feedback loops. In other words, are the things that I'm doing uh, in the feature in sort of pushing new features and feature development impacting the service delivery? Um, it, because oftentimes those are the things that, that lead to unreliability is, is changes that we make. Um, so over, I would say, the last 10, 15 years inside of Google to start with, but now, now everywhere, um, there has been a methodology around measuring uh, how reliable services are. Um, and it is broadly defined as uh, implementing service level objectives. Uh, there's a wonderful book, if you're looking for more information, written by one of my colleagues, um, Alex Hidalgo. It's an O'Reilly book called uh, uh, Implementing Service Level Objectives. I, I'd highly recommend it. Um, just a, a little plug there. But uh, a, a service level objective is basically saying, uh, you know, wh what is our goal for reliability for this service? Um, how how do we want it to perform? Um, and that that doesn't have to be defined just in terms of availability, whether the service is up or down. It, it should actually be defined in terms of, is this service doing what customers expect it to do? And it's obviously very service dependent. So in the case of, you know, think about like a, a banking application where I'm using bill pay. As the customer, I don't really care whether I can log into uh, the banking application, like that's a necessary but not sufficient thing. I care whether I can actually go pay my bill, right? And if you think about all of the things that are involved with that, there is obviously an, an online and an offline component. And if I were to develop a service level objective related to the bill pay, it would probably look something like 99.9.95% of the time, when a customer uh, logs into the banking app, they are able to go uh, pay their bill and the payment actually makes it to the vendor. Um, and so then you say, okay, well, how am I actually gonna go measure that? And the reality is we have metrics maybe for some of that journey, right? We can tell whether the user is logged in and is able to actually submit the payment. Um, but maybe we don't have metrics for other parts of the journey today, right? We don't know whether the, the payment has made it to the vendor. Um, but we can find that, right? We can maybe tell whether that payment is eventually deducted or that check is cashed. Um, so SLOs uh, tie together data from a lot of different parts of the business to inform us as to whether we're actually achieving the goals that the customer has. And they're the best way that we've found to figure out whether we're delivering uh, the sort of reliable experience customers are looking for. That's that's kind of the high level um, of an SLO. Measurements? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Lilac, I didn't get, get that. Federated measurement system. Yeah, I think that's that's one way to look at it. Um, so, you know, the first place we start is often metric systems. And, and metrics are, are inadequate for this because metrics tell us what is happening at any 
one moment in time. Uh, so, you know, I, I know how much CPU I'm consuming right now. Uh, I, I can alert on whether I have consumed uh, too much CPU at, at this given mo uh, moment in time. But it doesn't tell me whether I'm actually delivering the experience that the customer is expecting over, over a period of time. Um, and what the research has shown is that, you know, customers don't look at just one experience they have with software in determining whether they're satisfied. They, you know, it, it really is a, a, a measurement of, uh, you know, how things have performed over time for that customer. Um, so SLOs let us collect that data over a period of time, seven days or 30 days, um, and understand how well we performed over that period of time and then take action based on that. It may be something like, well, you know, we have not been as reliable as we wanted to be. So we're going to pause feature development and go work on, you know, this very, um, uh, you know, unsophisticated uh, tech debt that, uh, that, you know, really needs to get burned down to, to improve reliability. Um, and the cool thing is SLOs give us a way to measure the impact uh, of spending time on things like uh, working on tech debt that aren't typically the things that uh, that are really, you know, exciting to a to a CEO, for example. I love the phrase uh, functioning as design, because sometimes functioning as design is not really uh, the way you want it to function. Are, are you providing like those? Um, I, I don't want to say those insights, but is the interpretation left to the company implementing Noble Nine or is it or, or are you helping in any way there? Right. Because. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the practices of how to actually decide what your SLOs are and, and, you know, which SLIs you should use are so unique to each individual company that, you know, we can we can provide best practices. But but really, it's about uh, make, helping those companies understand, uh, you know, how to go about that. Um, and then on the, the technology side, on the platform side, to actually get adoption of SLOs requires um, a lot of, of uniformity across the organization. So w our platform, you know, we focused on things like making it easy to collect the data from, from you know, disparate places. Sometimes it's coming from logging systems. Um, in most enterprises, there's multiple metric systems uh, depending on the environment. Sometimes that data is living in transactional databases um, or, or places like MongoDB. Uh, and, you know, it's really a matter of bringing it all into one place and, and uh, giving the organization a common language to talk about reliability. So you're not talking about well, did I burn too much CPU or, uh, you know, was the database transaction too slow? You're talking about how much error budget do I have for this service and how much error budget have I consumed? Um, and, and just a, a word on error budget, which Dominic mentioned earlier, uh, error, error budget, you know, if we talk about how reliable we want something to be, what the objective is, we might say 99% of the time we want this service to deliver a result within two seconds, right? The 1% the of the time we're willing for that service to not deliver the result within two seconds is considered our error budget. This is, this is how much unreliability we're willing to have. And we, we talk about you know, actually consuming that error budget, spending it. You actually want to spend it. You don't want your service to be uh, more reliable than you've defined your SLO to be because that actually has negative implications as well. So you're measuring meaningful interactions. That's what you're doing. I mean, that's, that's great. Um... Do you feel as though the industry, how, how receptive, I mean, you know, I feel like when I think of monitoring systems and how reactive they are and how it's been, you know, we've had these for many, many years. 
Um, I think that's kind of what you're describing. How how are you seeing this in the industry, the adoption of this, Brian? Do you feel like there's a curve involved right now? Do you feel like we're beyond that? Um, where do you feel like we are? Oh, there, there's always a technology adoption curve. Uh, and it's a great question. There's a lot of different uh, stages of maturity that, that we see out there. Um, I would say organizations that have grown up over the last five to seven years are probably further along in terms of adopting SRE practices um, and and SLOs specifically. But what we found is that just the the uh, the interest that the, uh, the the tech industry has had in improving reliability and making sure that they're spending the right amount of money on it. Um, that those, as Lilac mentioned, those systems that need to have HA have HA because they actually really have to have a higher level of availability. And so it makes sense to spend the money on it. Um, those those trade-offs are, are not not well-defined. Um, so we're seeing a ton of interest in, in SLOs and, and those practices. And, and we're seeing you know, the largest organizations in the world, banks, media companies, e-commerce companies, investing in SRE, building SRE teams. Uh, I think SRE is the number two um, uh, sort of hottest job on LinkedIn right now. Um, and it's, it, it's uh, so it's kind of creating this, this groundswell. Yeah, I think the big difference is scale and complexity. Because, you know, back in the Stone Age, when I used to be a sysadmin, the way I would monitor my infrastructure was I had uh, a massive, for the time, 20-inch CRT monitor. And if you pick that thing up, you know, lift with your legs and not with your back. <laughs> and I had six X terms carefully tiled across this thing, uh, each one tailing a different log. And that was a perfectly reasonable way for me to keep an eye on the infrastructure. I was effectively doing the, uh, the correlation between these uh, different data sources in my head because I knew the infrastructure. That does not scale anymore. You can't have that understanding. You can't maintain it as the infrastructure self-modifies in response to external events, uh, the pace of development of these uh, microservices, the independent development, because the whole point of microservices is that Team A can roll out a thing without waiting for Team B, without waiting for the big yearly update. And so you need something that can do this automatically, but then how do you understand what all of the automation is doing? And the only way to do that is to go back to first principles. You know, What's the objective? What are we actually trying to do? And then map that to the data sources you have. Exactly. You know, years ago, I was working in like back when VM management and grid computing and all of those things and, and the layers of abstraction were just layering over and over and over each other. And I had this sort of operating theory that we were like um, IT people and, and IT infrastructures were just like really old wooden floors that we just kept layering shellac over. And at some point one day we would find out that there was like a dead mouse, but it was like 12 layers deep somewhere in there. And we had no idea how to get through the layers of abstraction to find out what was happening at the bottom. And it feels a little like that may be happening actually, yeah. right? Like we're- My we're son just... is a big fan of dead mouse, by the way. <laughs> who by the way is canadian yeah they're great we've come full circle that's fantastic i bet yeah there was uh, the verna vinge books uh, were about that that people didn't actually understand their technology stack beyond the first few layers closest to the service the surface and below that it was all just hacks upon hacks and it's turtles all the way down it still comes down to complexity right i think people complain about complexity but the complexity is there to 
to solve a different problem, right? And it's it's exactly kind of the the analogy that uh, that Lilac used, right? I mean, you could get down to uh, a base problem to fix. Um, and I think a lot of, at least I feel like a lot of companies struggle getting to that sort of kind of architecture to get to that point. Cause I think some are still set in, in old, um, old ways, but of course, I mean, if, if you're building a company from the ground up, then it's a lot easier. Um, yeah, I, I, I would assume, um, uh, Brian, that th- there's not many kind of uh, old school companies, but really kind of companies trying to redefine uh, things that you're working with. Is that yeah. the right assessment? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I sort of expected it to go that way. I think what has surprised me is the pace with which, you know, so-called old school companies are, are modernizing their de- their development practices. Um I, I don't think anybody is going and saying, hey, we should just go rewrite every application we have to be microservice based. Uh, nobody is nobody is crazy enough to do that. But as new services are getting developed and as new applications are coming online, um, those are those are typically being built with more of a cloud native modern um, uh, infrastructure and on more of a modern uh, cloud native infrastructure and with more modern development practices. Um, you know, and, and it's really driven by developers who, you know, just don't want to spend a lot of time uh, uh, figuring out how to deploy the monolith. So it, it is it is kind of a sea change that we're seeing. Um, but that's not to say that every application is getting is getting rewritten into microservices uh, because that's not the case. And, and I think what you often see is you see boundaries, uh, pieces of an application that are, are built on cloud, built on cloud native uh, infrastructure. Um, but then they're very tightly integrated with other back office systems that are running on even um, mainframes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if you want to figure out how reliable, uh, you know, this customer facing application is going to be, you have to then go build an SLO for the mainframe so that the team that is architecting the, the customer facing application knows what they can expect. They, they know what they're working with. Right, the rewrite needs a compelling event because that's an expensive and fraught process if it goes wrong. But one of the things, one of the drivers for people to rewrite their old legacy applications is precisely to get better visibility into the components and their interactions and how they affect the end user experience. Because one of the flaws that's not mainframes as such, I mean, the application development practices that, that we had, the monolith, uh, is that they produce relatively small amounts of data that you can then analyze, whereas the benefits of modern architectures is that you don't have to install a monitoring agent or go look for data. The things are self-instrumented. They'll drown you in data. Yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly. It's more of a question of making sense. Yeah. Problem. You have, yeah, you have the inverse problem of which data should I actually be looking at? To, you know, what what do I actually care about? I'm getting reams and reams of data from this service mesh. Um, but you, yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. Are you seeing this uh, pop up across all verticals? So, Brian, what I mean is, you know, small, medium business, for example. Are they? Do you see them um, flocking towards microservices? Are you seeing this mainly in like large financials? I know you use Netflix as an example. And of course, there's going to be a lot of these, you know, cloud type players that are going to have these, uh, you know, this technology. But I'm just curious, you know, what you're seeing out there. Are you seeing them flock to maybe? Um, you know, more, you know, SaaS offerings, if you're SMB, maybe more no code. I'm just, I'm curious what you're seeing in the industry. 
uh, everything and everything in between. Um, I think if you if you're talking about you know software companies that are being built over the last like maybe two to three years, um, they're certainly going in the direction of of microservices and and they're running it on um, you know totally serverless platforms or or something like you know like a Fargate. Um, and and the the reason for that is just it's it's just so easy to to build software that way. Um, the the libraries and all of the modern programming language are assuming this this sort of architecture. Um, so you know if I if I want to go build a you know service based application in Go and run it on Kubernetes, right? I can go I can get that up and running in a couple of days, um, and it's easy to instrument. And there's there's just a lot of uh, a community behind that uh, to help me out, um, and and the same goes for you know running things on Lambda, running r- running things different places. I think what what tends to happen with the the no code or the low code, um, uh, you know, platforms, you know, like like Lambda for example, is is you actually do run into um, performance and scaling issues as as you start to scale up. Uh, because you don't, you sometimes don't have a good understanding of what the SLOs or the uh, of those uh, sorts of platforms are, right? Everybody knows about the issues with like Cold Start, for example, um, and you, you, I think, have a lot more control over those things when you're running them in Kubernetes. So a lot of folks just like to start there. Um, yeah, and yeah. No, that that's helpful. I'm I'm thinking from a complexity perspective. I would imagine some of these organizations uh, with resource constraints want to eliminate complexity, yeah. and you know, just one from my uh, point of view, I, I think you know. It sounds like it can be very complex, but that Noble Nine will eliminate a lot of that and ensure that you're getting what you what you want to get out of this. Um, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. I, I think complexity comes in a couple ways. You can think about the complexity of actually creating these these uh, solutions, and I think that's it's actually much easier today, right? I can go, you know, build my binaries, Dockerize them, throw them into a Kubernetes manifest, and you know they're up and running, and I don't have to worry about uh, you know, VPCs and subnets and in, like Dominic said, installing agents on VMs, like all of that information is just at my fingertips. But then as I scale up and I'm trying to figure out if I'm actually doing a good job, um, that's where it, that's where it, uh, it actually is, it becomes a lot more complex, um, to figure out if, uh, you're meeting expectations for service delivery. And that is where we're seeing a lot of interest and in adoption in Noble9. Indeed. So, if people want to learn more about Noble9, uh, apart from the website noble9.com, is there anywhere specific that you'd like to point them uh, so that they can learn and understand and contact you if they want to test it out in uh, their, own, their own environment? Yeah, I would say the, the website is actually probably the best place. Uh, you know, we have a, a trial form there. You can, you can hit that. We have actually have a ton of content about SLOs up on the website um, on our blog. And uh, so I, I would suggest they, they check that out. Um, the book that I mentioned um, is uh, Implementing SLOs is a great place, as well as uh, the other O'Reilly book on uh, site reliability engineering that was originally written by folks out of Google um, is, a, is a great place to start. There's also a, a community. Um, it's called the uh, Beyond Seattle SRE uh, community. Um, if you just Google for that, you'll find it. It's a community of SREs that started uh, in Seattle, but with the pandemic, they kind of expanded to be global. So um, that's that's a place to go for more info. Um, and I, I was actually informed that there is now a, a conference being planned uh, focused on SLOs called uh, SlowConf. 
Um, and so if you're interested in information about SlowConf, um, I think we can, we can post that after the podcast as well. Excellent. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a super instructive uh, conversation. Uh, so we'll find links to all of those resources that we mentioned in the show notes in your favorite podcast player. Uh, or we'll also we're also trying to figure out how to post them up on our website. We're trying to get a little bit more professional about this thing. So with that, we look forward to talking to you all again next week. In the meantime, you can find us on the Twitters at Roll4 with the number 4 Enterprise or in our LinkedIn page. Um, but with that, thank you so much to Brian from Noble9, and we'll be talking to you next week. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for Brian. having me. This was fun.